If you have your Bibles, uh, as Steve said, open up to 1 Peter chapter 3, and uh, we're going to spend some time in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. But before we do that, we have been uh, this year spending a little bit of time each Sunday kind of rehearsing and reinforcing uh, the things that we believe, our theology. We've been using something called the New City Catechism, and today we kind of look at what the Word of God means to our life. And so the question is this, uh, how is the word of God to be read and heard? And the answer is specifically with diligence, preparation, and prayer, so that we may accept it with faith, store it in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. Let's pray together. God, we do come before you this morning and uh, recognize that that your word is uh, our communication with you, a primary source of what you want from our lives, and, um, and you use it in all sorts of ways, Lord. You uh, use the Holy Spirit in us to, to draw it into our uh, conscience and to help us understand situations in life and to give us instruction on how to live. And so, Lord, I pray that, uh, that we would, as uh, believers in Jesus, take the truth of the Word of God to heart and to understanding, and to action in us. In Jesus' name, amen. And we've been in First Peter for the last few months, and uh, as, as we were kind of making our way through First Peter, what we've really discovered is that Peter's writing to this group of people. He's in Rome at the time. This is around 55 AD, so, you know, maybe 25, 30 years after Jesus was crucified and rose again and uh, then ascended into heaven. And so the church is in a position of really strong growth. Now, you know what? It's not really, it is the church, but don't, don't get hung up on what we have to kind of think of as church. Sometimes, you know, when we say the church, we start thinking about this group of people or this uh, a church building or a church service or something like that. What was happening in that day is that there were being those added to faith. In other words, people were hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ and they were responding all over the known world at the time. The, the Roman Empire was, was a, an expansive kingdom and, uh, and it had control over most of what people would consider the known world at the time. And, uh, and particularly in the region of Turkey, which is in some ways a little bit of a, a causeway from the Holy Land in Jerusalem all the way up to Europe, it would be the way that people would pass through on land and then kind of hop a little uh, body of water and get over to Greece and then up into Europe. And so it was a really specifically uh, and strategic place to send missionaries and for people to know the gospel. And so the, the gospel was really going strong there. People were converting to Christ and, and there were families that were some, were, some were trusting Christ and others were still kind of lost in their sin and following paganism or the gods of the day or the gods of the city that they lived in. And so this was creating a little bit of a difficult environment for marriages and, uh, and Peter wants to address that. He says, as, as you live as redeemed people, this is a new concept for these folks. They, there's never been a time where more people in a single instant have gone from paganism to Christianity than in the early period of the church. And, uh, and so these, these people were trying to figure out how do you live? What does it look like? 
And so what, what Peter is going to do is going to address husbands and wives, primarily husbands and wives who one or the other had accepted Christ, but the, but the other spouse or their spouse had not. So you had wives who were coming to Christ and husbands who were not yet believers, and you were having husbands who were coming to Christ and, and wives who were not yet believers. And, and what we're going to see is that, is that Peter addresses first the wives, and he does that pretty extensively, and then he addresses husbands. And one of the reasons that he addresses wives first is, is not because they needed it more or not because there was uh, more instruction that was supposed to be given to a woman. It was because in those days, a woman who would choose her own faith apart from her husband's faith would be in an extremely precarious situation. In the culture in that day, a family was ruled by the father. And that family's religion and life and everything was in line with what the father thought about religion and life and everything. And if, and if a, a wife or a family member would depart from the beliefs or the ideals of a father, I mean, there would be a, a tremendous amount of pushback to the extent that a wife could be subjugated uh, out of the home, in a sense, to be almost what you would say excommunicated from the family. She could be divorced, particularly, and actually thrown out of the home. Or in some places in the Roman Empire, she could be executed for that. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that, that there was a time when a woman would be executed because she didn't believe what her husband believes? I hope you can imagine that because it's happening even today. You know, it's this, it's this awfulness that takes place because men have a strength over women that they abuse. And we're going to talk about that more in just a minute. But, but what, what Peter does is at the beginning, he wants to address these women who are in a precarious situation and, and tell them what it's supposed to look like as a Christian wife, even if you're living with an unchristian husband. And he's going to, he's going to hearken back to the biblical foundation of marriage to, uh, to help make his case. And so let me just read as we begin 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husband, so that even if some do not obey, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respect and your pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty, imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women of hope, who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in, understand, in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since you and they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So I realize in our culture today, uh, this kind of conversation brings up a little bit of anxiety or anxiousness or even frustration in the lives of many. And I want to 
tell you what we're going to do today. I want to talk about the context here and talk about why Peter said what he did when he said it and, and what he was trying to accomplish. But I also want to talk about the biblical foundation of this for just a minute towards the end and then hopefully be able to apply that to our own lives and our own marriages if, in case, if that is the case that you're, you're married. So let me just start with the context. Like I said, we're talking to a, a, a culture where people are coming to Christ and their husbands or wives may not be Christians. And so God's trying to teach these people how it is that you're supposed to live as a Christian with a, a, a non-Christian spouse. And so he tells the wives, he says, listen, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to give you instruction on what this looks like. I'm going to tell you that, you that you live by the biblical foundations of marriage and life and godliness, and that will attract your husband, not necessarily to you, but to Jesus. If you look at this passage, it's interesting. You know, it's been used for a lot of different fodder. It's been used for a lot of different ammunition. One of the things that it's been used for is to teach that women are not supposed to do anything with their hair, wear nice clothes, or wear jewelry. And and, and I don't believe that's what this passage is teaching. I believe what this passage is teaching is that that the, the adornment of jewelry and the adornment of Uh, made-up hair and the adornment of fine clothing isn't evil and it isn't wrong. It's just that it's not going to do what you think it might do, especially in relationship to a a wife who is engaged with a non-believing husband. In fact, what Peter is saying is that the adornment that, that, that attracts people to Jesus isn't the outward stuff. It's this godly inner character and that's true whether you're a wife with a, with a husband who is an unbeliever or whether you're just living out your life as a believer among those who yet don't believe. I mean, the attractiveness is not about who you are. It's about what Christ is doing in you. And that's a biblical principle that, that Peter's bringing forth to help wives understand how to live it out how to live out what it means to be a wife as a Christian to an ungodly husband who might lead them or at least attempt to lead them into paganism, who might lead them or at least attempt to lead them into things that are immoral, who might lead them or attempt to lead them in a way that's abusive or manipulative. manipulative. And what, what Peter is telling these people is that the most significant thing in this moment is that God has called you to be a witness to your husband. And the way you are to witness to your husband is to respond to him in a biblical way, to be godly in your nature and your character, to be someone who is attractive, not because of what you look like on the outside, but because of your relationship with the king of the universe, Jesus Christ. That's what Peter's trying to tell these women And then he goes on to the men and he says, listen, likewise, husbands, you know what? You have this this age-old history of being able to do whatever you want in the name of patriarchism and and be the, the leader and manipulate and abuse and control your women in your life. And what Peter's saying is if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've got to stop that. 
You've got you've to understand who your wife is. You've got to understand what she needs and what she brings to this relationship. You've got to understand what it's like to live with your wife in a way that is honoring to God, respecting her with tenderness and with care. And, not, and because she's the, as, as Peter says, because she's the weaker vessel, that doesn't mean that she is any less important. That doesn't mean that she is any less dignified. That doesn't mean that she is any less significant. That doesn't mean that she is any less qualified. What it means very specifically in this passage is that men were stronger physically and they had this in their lives and the history of it was that men would control women. And what he's saying is that because she's in a vulnerable situation, you are to show her the love of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing. If you hear these words that we've been talking about, you may have a little bit of anxiety, as I said. Or, or you may even have a little bit of pushback. To tell a wife that she is supposed to submit to be subjugated might be what you think, or to obey might be what you think, their husband. Um, I mean, that's, that's a challenge in our culture today. You know, Me Too, misogyny, and just general male stupidity basically, you know, it basically rules media today, doesn't it? And, and you know, Christian leaders, pastors, teachers, They're doing and saying things that are literally so anti-biblical and calling it biblical in the name of the roles of men and women, the the husband and the wife. I I was listening to, and please do not go and search this until afterwards, okay? No phone searching. I know you do that. I'm not dumb. I can see your phones. It's not a big deal. I get it. (laughs) But don't search this one until later, because if you search this one and you start watching it, you're going to be, it's going to so, so totally, totally distract you that I'll never be able to get one word back in. But I, I'm listening to this guy preach. I, I mean, I didn't, I heard about it. And then I, I didn't go like, I wasn't just listening to this guy and he said it. I actually, you know, went out and sought it out because I'd heard about it. But here's this guy. He's, he's the, he was going to be the moderator of this pretty big Christian uh, denominations general meeting. He was going to moderate that, which means he was going to kind of be the MC of this meeting. In a sermon last February, he stood before his congregation and he was talking about marriage and he was talking about fidelity in marriage. And he says, you know, why is it, why is it that women, after they get married, let themselves go? And it's like, seriously, did this guy just really say that? And I thought, it's got to be a joke. I mean, I really, I, you know, I mean, I say dumb things from the front a lot. And as soon as I realize I say it, I, you know, I act like I said something dumb. But then this guy goes on with like some, like six point outline. And one of the things that he says is that, uh, you know, ladies, if you let yourself go, you're going to give your husband the opportunity to look in another place for his physical satisfaction. And I'm like, am I really hearing a preacher who's going to have the voice of a lot of people in a denomination say something like this? Not to mention, dude, you're about 45 pounds overweight yourself. <laughs> Come on. Right? 
And then you've got, you've got other pastors who are in some ways world famous making statements about how a husband ought to rule, literally rule, over their wives in every area. You've got pastors who are abusing people on their staff, who are assaulting ladies in their church. I mean, we're living in a society today that is completely, I mean, just Christianity isn't helping the idea that men are supposed to love their wives and wives are supposed to respond to that love because we're sinful people. And what's happened is that there's this complete dismantling of a biblical doctrine that would teach that men and women are equal in dignity, worth, and value, dignity, worth, and significance, and, and yet because of how God made us, different in the resources, the giftedness, and the roles that we bring primarily into the marriage relationship and into the church. I think that's a pretty significant part of what's happening in our world today. There's a, there's a, 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 a I think, a storm on the horizon where, um, where the church is going to be held accountable. And it's, it is being held accountable. But the church is going to be called on the carpet to to how it has propagated this idea that men are able to control and manipulate and to, to literally use their power to keep women in their place, but also to use them for their own sexual desires. And, um, and I think the issue isn't the biblical teaching on that. It's the people... <laughs> like us, who are sinful, who are taking a biblical teaching and distorting it almost fully and completely. You know, when, a, when Scripture teaches that, um, that, there are, that there are equality in dignity, worth, and significance, and separateness in roles, it does not, by any stretch of the imagination, lead us to the place where, where one of the sexes can manipulate or abuse or cajole or control the other. Let me just give you a primer really quickly on the, on the whole view of men and women and God's creation of them and how that relates to the marriage context. In, first, in Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 27, here's what happens. God, he's giving some explanations on God's creation of the focal point of the pinnacle of his creation, humanity. And he says, so God created man. And when you see that word man in the first part of this passage, it refers to man in the sense of humanity, all of creation. So, so God created humanity, all of us, Every person who's ever lived, male or female, in his own image, right? In the image of God, he created humanity. He created him, humanity. Don't think of it in terms of just man. It's, it's humanity. And, uh, and in that particular situation, what that leads us to 
is that every single person shares the worth and the value, shares the dignity and the need for respect, shares the significance and the importance together. There is not one who is more important, significant, or valuable. Each of us, each of us, every, every single person who's ever been born shares that equitably together. And that's true. I mean, last, the last few weeks we've been talking about kids and we've been talking about slaves and masters. We've been talking about employees. We've been talking about all these things. And it's, and it's all true. There, there's nobody who's better than another person. And that's true whether it's between races. It's true whether it's between like socioeconomic classes. It's true whether it's about education. But it's also true and maybe fundamentally true about husbands and wives, men and women. We are created in the image of God. And yet, while we're created in the image of God, here's what he else also says. We're also created male and female. So in humanity, we are in the image of God. We are equal. There's nobody better, nobody worse. We're all the same. But because of how God made us, and because of the purpose for which God made us, there are different roles. And he talks about that, especially in relationship to the, to the marriage and in the church. And in the marriage, you know, there are some things that take place. What we see as we make our way through Scripture is that primarily a husband is to lead and love, and a wife is to respect and respond. Now, again, man, if you would just take that last 10 seconds of conversation and just lay it out there and just say, this is what the church teaches, I can see. Because words have meanings, right? And my meaning to those words and your meaning to those words might not be exactly the same, and certainly they wouldn't be the same as the world's meaning, right? And so what we have to do is explain what that looks like. So let's do that. Let's take a minute and, and say that, that God set forth male leadership in the marriage. Let me just take one step back from that before I even get to there. Let's remember something about marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, Verse 27, 26 through 27, God gives the specifics of how he created men and then how he created women. And then what he says is uh, that a man and a woman are supposed to leave what they were before, cleave to one another, and become one flesh. Now, that sounds awesome at a wedding, right? Right? Man, everybody wants to be one flesh at a wedding, right? Everybody, everybody understands, man, I'm, I'm creating this unified front. But, but let me just remind you of something. It's more than just wording. It's more than just a marriage license. It's more than just sharing bank accounts. It's more than just having children. It's more than just having a, a mortgage that you share together and a home that you eventually own. It is about two people who were once something else now become one, right? And what I was, even though I don't lose my personality, even though I don't lose um, my, my life before and all the influences in that, I don't lose my, my giftedness, I don't lose my weaknesses, I sure wish I would have, I didn't. And, uh, and I bring all of that into the marriage. And, I, and that's what I did, November 7, 1987. And Vicki, everything that she was before that, and, and everything that she is and every way that she's gifted and every weakness that she has, she, has, she brought that 
to the altar with me on November 7th, 1987, and two people became one. And now these two people, they have a different life purpose than each of us had before. I mean, it's similar, right? Because our purpose in general is to, is to love God and love people, right? It's to, it's to honor God with our lives in worship, and it's to bring people into a relationship with Christ by loving them. I mean, it's similar, but when I was doing it by myself, it was, I did it one way, and I did it in the way that, that I felt comfortable, and I did it in the way that my strengths you know, kind of played into that. And I was able to, to put my weaknesses behind. And, and Vicky was able to do the exact same thing. She was, she was doing the ministry in the way that she was doing it. And she was able to use her strengths and to kind of make up for her weaknesses on her own. And then, and then when we came together, we're this new person. Not, not really, but kind of. We're this new unit. We're this new identity. And in that new identity... I mean, God calls specifically us to do things. We, we, we bring everything that we are into that marriage covenant. And, and God has said, in that marriage covenant, the husband is responsible to initiate leadership towards the goal of glorifying God, developing the family, and being a catalyst to build the kingdom. That's what a husband's supposed to do. That doesn't mean a husband makes every decision. That doesn't mean a husband lays down the law. That doesn't mean a husband is responsible to to make sure that every part of every aspect of life is run in the way that he wants it run. That is, that's a wrong teaching. Here's what scripture says about that. The husband has been given the responsibility. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, right? Yes. Verse 7, for a man, let's go to verse 8 and 9. Forget that 7 for a second. That's, we can come back to that if we have time. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, let me just kind of, that even sounds a little weird, okay? I, I don't believe that, that God looked at me and then made Vicky for me. You know, I, I don't mean that, I don't, I don't believe that God like, like somehow, you know, worked it out that, uh, that Vicky was going to be everything I needed in life. That's, that's not what this is saying. What it's saying is that, is that husbands and wives have very specific roles, that, that a married couple has a very specific purpose. One of those is to glorify God. One of those is to develop people and family and fill the earth is the way he calls it. And, uh, and, and I'll tell you, if I was responsible to fill the earth by myself, that's not happening, right? I mean, just the whole issue of, you know, the way the human body is, that's, that's not happening. There's, there's a role that has to be played there. And so from the very beginning, we recognize that, that there's a role that has to be played. But, but man, because he has the authority, the authority, because he has the responsibility to lead, If you go back to Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve chose to eat from the tree that God had forbidden them to eat from, what happened? They're roaming around the garden, hiding from God, stitching up some clothes, and uh, and worried that God's going to call them out. And of course, what did God do? God called them out, right? But who did God call out? God specifically looks at Adam, the man, and holds him responsible for everything that has just happened. 
Why'd you let this happen? I mean, this is your watch. This is your responsibility. This is what you're supposed to be doing. That doesn't let the, the woman off the hook. It just says that, man, in this particular situation, to lead and to cleave and to become one flesh, one unit comes together. And you're responsible to make sure that unit's going in the right direction. Why didn't you do it? And you know what? God's going to say the same thing to me. For the times that I'm letting down the idea of glorifying God or the, the times that I'm, I'm not pushing for spiritual, physical, mental, emotional health in my family. For the times that I have neglected the, the, the call to be on the mission of the gospel. I mean, God's going to hold me accountable to that. And, and, and my role is to, is to lead, to see everything that Vicky brings to this relationship. You know, it's so funny. Vicky and I, and many of you know us well, and so you know how different we really are. You know, Vicky is black and white. I mean, black and white. And I am extremely gray. And, uh, I mean, she is logical, right? I mean, she, she, she can assess a situation and, uh, and, and break down the logic of it. And, um, and, and for me, I'm, I'm a tad bit more impulsive, a bit more emotional. And, uh, and I sometimes miss the logic. She is unbelievably detailed. I am unbelievably not detailed. And, uh, and here's the thing. When I'm walking in the Spirit... Man, I embrace everything that she is. And when there's something that we're trying to tackle or accomplish, and I embrace her black and whiteness and her detail and her concrete thinking, and, and, uh, and I can kind of, you know, get, miss the whole idea of the, 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 the whatever that is over here that's gray, and, uh, and we get so much done right? We get so much accomplished. So many cool things happen for the kingdom, for our family, for the glory of God. And when I'm walking in the spirit, man, I celebrate who she is. Unfortunately, I might walk in the flesh a little more than the spirit. (laughs) Because of my pride, sometimes when, when she's offering everything that she is to this environment, what do I do? Well, I get defensive or I you know, I, I get selfish or I, I get prideful and I, and I push it away. And every time I do that, I am acquiescing the role that God's given me to bring forth all we are as a couple together to accomplish the purpose he has for our life. And that's what, that's what it means to lead. I mean, there's no place in leadership for the ability for me to manipulate her or control her or demand from her. No place for that. And Scripture says in many different places, Ephesians 5 for one, Colossians 1.18 for another, that, um, that she is supposed to respond to that, to submit. That doesn't mean be subjugated to me. That doesn't mean to sit under my authority. It means that she brings all that she is into this union. And God holds me accountable to steward that. With her and together, but I'm responsible. That doesn't give me the right to demand things from her. It doesn't give me the right to tell her how she ought to live. It does give me the responsibility to keep us moving towards the glory of God and the purpose of God in my life. 
that's the, that's the whole aspect of this in a nutshell. And, and the foundation of what, of what Peter was telling these people in the early church is that if, if you live in a way that, um, that responds to the word of God, man, that's going to be attractive. Here's my, here's my hope for us as a church, for all of us who are married. And I realize not everybody is, and, and it doesn't matter whether you are or you aren't. You're, you're, if, you're, if you're single, I mean, you are still in the same exact position with the same worth, the same value, the same dignity, the same purpose to glorify God. You're just doing it in a different way, and that's, that's okay. Today, we're talking to married couples and my hope for us as a church, for those of us who are married, would be that people would see the way we love each other. Because, you know, we can't lead or respond. As a husband, I can't lead. And as a wife, you can't respond unless love is what informs and directs and inspires and motivates you. I mean, to love. And, and wouldn't it just be incredible if the love that we had for one another in marriage was so evident that the world would look at that and say, how can that be? How can that be? Man, I believe this sermon, even though in the first century it was more geared towards women because they were in a more precarious situation, I believe if Peter was writing this to us today, he would be taking us to the woodshed with our selfishness, with our abusive natures, with our passion for our own interest. And he'd be saying, is that what you think leading your wife is like? Is that what you think I'm calling you to? Do you think I'm giving you a license to manipulate? Do, do you think I'm giving you a license to get whatever you want? What I've given you is a responsibility to bring forth a picture of Christ and the church. That Jesus would die for his people and that his people would live in harmony together, serving him and the mission of the gospel for the glory of God. What God has called us into is a beautiful romance in marriage. But it's more than just the romantic aspects of it. It's the purpose for which he's done it. To bring him glory. To develop family and community. And to, and to bring people into his kingdom. Let's pray. God, I, I thank you so much personally. I thank you for who you've given me as a wife. I am so grateful. And, uh, and I thank you for our 34 years together. I pray, God, that you would continue to work in us and in all of us who are married to love, to seek you, to walk according to the call of God in our life, to be compassionate and merciful and grace-filled and forgiving and selfless. 
God, would you pour your Holy Spirit into us? Because none of that is natural. None of it is. My natural inclination is to be selfish, to get what I want. And Lord, the beauty of the cross is that you provide us a way to be transformed from that. And I pray that that transformation will make a difference in our city, in our region, in our world. In Jesus' name we pray.